Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today, we're going to be delving into some more of Napoleon's military maxims. But before we get into that, I know that for you, when you're looking at the episode number, it will probably say episode 99. In my notes, for whatever reason, we are on episode 100 right now. Now, over the... I, I did go back and check out my notes compared to the published uh, shows. And I couldn't necessarily, like, I, I did it a couple of times, and I couldn't find any discrepancies. I cannot tell you where it got off, where where our 1 through 100 is different from your 1 through 100. Best I can imagine is that an episode didn't, didn't get published at some point, and I missed it. But regardless, we'll be celebrating twice, because today... For us, here in my notes, uh, it's episode 100, which is awesome. I, I think that's that's kind of a big deal. Um, for, for you guys, this is the one before we celebrate that, because for you it's episode 99. So either way, I am... I'm just... I, 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 I never thought it would go on this long. Let's just put it that way. I originally started this as a tool for my students in order to access this information while, you know, kind of COVID was going down and, and to create a record of what we're talking about here. But it evolved into something else. You know, I've got people in multiple communities that we, we talk with and every day our listener base grows and every day the, the amount of people that we're able to actually like talk to and get good interviews with, why well, that, that kind of opens up a little bit more too. So again, thank you all. Thank every single one of you, and, and, and you new people as well, because I'm watching the, the new listeners going up too, and it's just, you know, I, I'm just so pleased. I'm just so pleased that y'all are as interested in this as I am, that you enjoy taking a little time out of your schedule to listen to a little bit about wargaming and military science. So from the bottom of my heart, you know, thank you so much. And the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, we've got 24,000 downloads. So episode 100, by my count. 24,000 downloads. Wow, that's a lot. And on seven continents, as we had talked about in a previous episode. So not looking too shabby. We're doing pretty okay over here and, and showing no signs of stopping because this is a calling, if you will. So thank you for being along with me on the journey. Another part of this calling, however, is that you know people in other situations may want to hear what you have to say. For instance, I've got a lecture that I'm preparing for Chaos Wars, which is going to be happening in Idaho at the end of July. 
So I'm already prepping that lecture. And kind of a part of that lecture is the one that I'm prepping for the end of the month. Montana, Missoula in particular, has its local sci-fi fantasy convention, which is MizCon. And by the way, if you haven't made any plans for that last weekend of May and you're in the area, I highly recommend checking out MizCon. It is, it is a punch for such a small thing. Like it is not, I mean, it's not a tiny con that gets pretty big and they, they bring in some really cool people too. They had uh, George R.R. R. Martin at one point as a special guest. Uh, Patrick, Patrick Rothfuss has been there as well. So it's, it's not a shabby little thing. It's pretty darn good. And, you know, they, they have several days and there's panels and there's excellent shopping and just a really cool community. So if you have a minute um, and uh, you, you have a desire to, check out MizCon. If not this year, then and maybe next year and, and just keep a, keep a mind open for it because I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, I'm, it's not just because my wife is a uh, volunteer coordinator there. That's not the only reason I'm <laughs> hyping it. It's also an excellent centerpiece for our community here in Missoula. So, yeah, check it out. But uh, the, the lecture prep, you know, a lot goes into it because it's different having a live audience there. And I'm hoping for participation. One of the things that I don't get the opportunity to do, to do with you, as I do in a normal like teaching situation, is that I cannot field your questions. You know, you may be you know, having questions as we're going along of like, oh, I, I wonder you know, what that might mean. Or I wonder you know, if he could expand upon this. And unfortunately, I'm not retroactively psychic because you're listening to this far after I've recorded it. And uh, so, so there's uh, a limitation that I have to be able to respond to what you might be listening or listening for and, and what you might be able to gain more of if I were to explain. And so that's one of the things that I'm planning for in this is several question and answer periods. I'm being like, okay, we just finished covering this topic. Is everybody on the same page? Does anybody need clarification? Does anybody have any thoughts, ideas they want to share on the subject? Because I, I like it to be a conversation. And you've noticed that in the past, I have had a lot of guests on recently not so much because I've had my hands full with, with several other projects as well, but uh, it's always nice. It's always nice to have a guest on. It's always nice to have you know somebody who else who's got a different perspective and to be able to chat with them about things. Because I mean, I enjoy this work well enough solo. You know, I, I don't mind sitting in a room reading old books and, and talking to the wall <laughs> with a bunch of fancy gizmos on it. You know, that doesn't bother me one bit, but there's, there's something to be said for that human interaction, that, uh, that human kind of back and forth, which is very fulfilling to the soul. And, and again, gives a good other perspectives. Every person I've talked to has, you know, said something that's made me think. And this is a, this is something that I, by the way, during this episode, you might hear, yeah, you can hear it right there. Do you hear the rain that's coming down outside? You know, I looked at the weather and it was like, oh, there's going to be this break right here. And I was like, outstanding. I'm going to go out. And then I checked it again. And it was like, oh, by the way, it's going to rain for the rest of the time. Good luck. So I can hear it. I, I doubt you guys can hear it because I've got my settings done in such a way that I can hear the gnat uh, who sneezes three streets over. But yeah, ooh, dang, it's coming out up there. Huh. But anyways, uh, so the lecture prep is, is a, a different thing entirely. And for me, it's a matter of trying to make a synopsis on this particular uh, occasion. I'm hoping to gain some more listeners between you and me. Um, this is a, an attempt to hopefully bring some more people in who might be interested in the topic. So I want the, the lecture to be not overly detailed in one particular topic, but I want it to be a general overview 
of what we talk about here on the show. And I'm going to try to record it and put it up on the YouTube page. Yes, 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 I know. I've been talking about the YouTube page for years now, and if you've been on there, it's crickets. And I get that. Actually, no, no, we do have a couple of things on there. There's the two battle reports <laughs> that I did that I actually ended up sticking on there. But apart from that, YouTube has largely been unused, and I, I know I need to get better about that. I will get better about that. And hopefully one of the things you'll see on there first is one of these lectures. Um, so yeah, that's fun though. I mean, it's, it's nice to have this opportunity. It's nice to have people who are uh, wanting this sort of thing to, to happen. So, and uh, you know, again, if you've got your own convention and you have a desire for a uh, amateur military science enthusiast who also is a military historian enthusiast to come and speak at your local convention, I'm always willing for a, a, another plane ride, so just let me know. Lastly, before we actually get into this episode, um, coming up this next weekend, we have our home opener, which is, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with something like Bellegarth, it is when you have a home event that is your first home event, as the opener implies. And in years past, because we didn't have a, la a large presence along the like Idaho border right there, it was usually in the the lower or central Idaho, further away from us, and there were no other groups in Montana, our opener was mostly just a, a chance to be like, hey, we're having an event with the same people we usually see at practice, but you know what? It's an event, and we're going to do a little bit extra here and have a raffle and have a little feast, and you know, there's a lot of things that go along with an event that wouldn't go along with a normal practice. So it's kind of like a, a difference between a family dinner and a birthday party with the same family. You know, it might be the same people there sitting at the table, but there's a different atmosphere. Anymore, though, what's really awesome is that there are other realms in Montana. A couple, actually. And we do have some realms on the other side of the Idaho border, which are getting large and have people who like to travel. And so, I mean, War of the Gate this last year, for instance, we had a ton of people from out of town. Usually we have a few friends who come up from like Boise or Idaho Falls and, and perhaps some others if they're in the area of vacationing already. But as a general rule, people don't really travel for a small day event in Montana. Or yeah, I mean, the opener is a small day event. And even WOG is, is I mean, it's a weekend event, but we had so many people there this last year. And I'm, I'm hopeful for this year because we're doing it in June rather than later in the summer. So fingers crossed, it might not be super smoky this time around. And I'm I'm hoping to get to fight at my home, like, main event, but I digress. An opener is nice. Um, in particular, this year, I think the opener is going to be nice because the people who are coming kind of mark this growing community that we have in this area of the world. You know, there's, there's some areas where there's a large concentration of fighters, you know. Central Tennessee, there's a lot of realms around that area. Uh, several different areas in the south, actually. Michigan. You've got a large center around Grand Rapids and the surrounding region that also has quite a few realms. The Seattle region used to have a, quite a bit of activity. It kind of died down just before COVID, but that used to be one of the bigger areas too. Portland, uh, some great realms uh, in and around Portland. And then Southern California is one of the places where you have the largest proliferation of realms. But in many cases, those are like five or six person realms in like smaller areas of one, you know, larger city. So like San Diego, for instance, might have four or five realms. And each of those realms might not have like 20 or 30 people. Maybe we're talking like five or 10. But, you know, San Diego is so big that it takes a second for people to be able to get together. 
And so seeing this, seeing as many people as we, that I'm seeing who want to come to this home event of ours, really kind of shows the way that things are building up around here. And that makes me super happy because that means that people could come to our events and then when they're having them, we can go and support them. Uh, so it's just, it's a great way to build community and find even more people that we like and like to fight with. So yeah, that's my, my little spiel for today. And I think it's about time for us to re-embrace the maxims of Napoleon. Picking up where we left off here at number 58, Napoleon says, the first quality of a soldier is constancy in enduring fatigue and hardship. Courage is only the second. Poverty, privation, and want are the school of the good soldier. You know, especially at the time that we're talking about in this particular, like, uh, setting. You know, Clausewitz and Napoleon being contemporaries and the sort of warfare that was being fought then. This is absolutely true. Because courage, in terms of, like, en masse fighting, is not as necessary because you've got pressure, social pressure of the people to your right and to your left, your sergeants who are calling orders, whoever's behind that, like a political officer or, or whoever who is watching for deserters. And in this, you have the ability to just march and point. And again, the fighting at this particular time didn't require a whole lot of finesse either for the individual soldier. The weapons were largely inaccurate. And so you basically just pointed in a direction with everybody else. I mean, you guys have seen movies from this particular era. I don't know why I'm explaining this to you. But because you have these large groups that are moving, courage, like he says, is not as necessary. And even in modern warfare, some of that is somewhat true as well. A lot of what they teach you in basic training, you know, some of it is skill-based. You know, you're learning how to fight. You're learning how to shoot. You're learning how to maintain your weapon. You're learning how to, you know, work out regularly. But throughout all of this, you are being taught how to be constant in your enduring of fatigue and hardship. I mean, you're getting PT'd, you know, uh, uh, you know given, you know, punish, punitary push-ups or, or runs or whatever the like the whole way through. You are constantly exhausted. I mean, that was that was a constant for any of us. I have never slept anywhere better than I did during basic training because of all the exercise that we were doing forever. I, so much running. Those of you who are in the military previously, you know what I'm talking about. So much running. And I became, I became a fan of push-ups after that. I mean, before I went into basic training, you know, I was like anybody else in high school for the most part. I was like, I will work out when I need to, and I will not enjoy it. Particularly things like push-ups or sit-ups, you know, I'm over them. And then somewhere during basic training, it's like I got Stockholm syndrome because now I'm a huge fan of push-ups. Like they, they have long been my favorite form of workout. I'd gotten to a point uh, when TF and I were working out, you know, two or three times a week where I could do handstand push-ups. That's how much I enjoyed them. And it wasn't a matter of the strength, like the physical strength it gave. It was the endurance that was the important part. And it was the ability to push past. It's one of the things that basic teaches you is it helps you find where your line is, where your limit, your physical limit is, or your mental limit. And then it teaches you how to go past that. And, I mean, 
This isn't always a good thing. There's a reason that most old soldiers and old Marines are broken. You know, ibuprofen makes its money off of us because, you know, it's just hard on the body. Even if you're not a person who is in active war zones, even if you're not a person like a ranger or special forces, it's still just a hard life on one's body. And that's with all the, um, you know, co commodities that we have now. You know, the nicer barracks and bases, the access to better medical treatment, the better weapons, the more individual movement that happens, even despite all of that, the wear and tear on the body is huge. And that's for a person who is conditioned for it. That's, that's part of their whole reason for basic training is to harden a person up physically and mentally and emotionally to deal with an active war zone. I, I don't know what the other branches do. I'm not sure exactly what a Navy or an Air Force basic training are, but for the combat branches like ourselves and the Marines, again, it wasn't, we, we absolutely used our weapons. We went to the firing range often, but more than that, we were made tough. And then again, that's, that's with what we have today. Think about back then, you know, the, the early 1700s, all through to the 1800s and beyond. Like this entire section when mass warfare was becoming more and more potent and you had these large groups of people who were moving in various ways into various areas, this, this new style of war that really required grit in order to do and to accomplish. So yeah, I agree with him here, even, even for today, because at the time it meant something totally different. But even for us who are fighters or even for us who are uh, tabletop war gamers. This ability, you know, courage is, is all fine and dandy, but enduring fatigue and hardship. I had a game the other day, actually, I'm, I'm, I swear I'm going to move on beyond this <laughs> at some point, but I had a game the other day and I'm fairly certain a big reason why my opponent lost is because he lost his cool. You know, he had gotten into a point where a couple of rolls didn't go his way. He was frustrated and he was, you know, visibly distracted from the game. He had not rendered himself in enduring for that sort of hardship, for the hardship that comes when you lose a dice roll that you were really certain of, or that you really needed. You know, I mean, earlier in that same game, I had failed a four-inch charge. I had already re-rolled something, and I got snake eyes on my charge, and it was, it was devastating for my war effort. It nearly cost me the game because of that, that one roll. But, you know, I, I took a second to be like, oh, okay, of course. And then, you know, brushed it off and, and focused on the game. I said, okay, this is the situation I have now. What was, was. What I wanted didn't happen. So now what I need to do is focus on what I do have and how to make the best use of it. And that's, I mean, that's at like a quote unquote general's level. But even on the basic level, this ability to endure that hardship, uh, events, you know, events are the same way. You've got, you know, folks who are going out there and you know, camping for a weekend or like the event that I'm going to in uh, July, the, at the end of July there in Idaho, that chaos wars that I had spoken of. That's a week long event, 23rd to the 30th. You know, that, that takes endurance and, uh, and the ability to kind of, uh, you know, endure, like you say, that hardship, even though we have modern amenities. And that's, of course, if you want to keep fighting on the field. And there's those of us who want to see that field every single day. And there's other people that go and, you know, they're there for social reasons. And they might fight a couple hours, a couple of days. But, you know, they're there for other reasons. And that's all fine and dandy. But I'm assuming that part of the reason you listen to my show is because you want to, to be 
at the top. You want to be a person who's out there and, and fighting more consistently. I know I do. That's the reason I read this stuff. That's the reason I rehearse this stuff is because I'd like to be out there as much as possible. Endurance. Endurance will get us there. Not just courage, but endurance. All right, moving on to 59. There are five things which a soldier ought never to be without. His musket, his cartridge box, his knapsack, his provisions for at least four days, and his pioneer hatchet. Reduce his knapsack, if you deem it necessary to do so, to the smallest size, but let the soldier always have it with him. So the knapsacks at the time could en encompass, you know, several things. You know, you could have changes of clothes in there, changes of shoes. Of course, you'd have the ability, like your, your quote-unquote tent or your biovac, and you'd have some sort of bedroll for the most part. And in many cases, you can, you can start reducing that down. You know, take out an item here, take out an item there, but really the, the very basis of it, the ability to sleep out in the open needs to be there in as, as little form as we can possibly have, but something, you got to have something while you're there. Our musket, you know, whatever that is for us, if it's a weapon that we have at an event, or if it's our army that we have at our, our you know, tabletop gaming, then, you know, that's the thing that we need to have. Our carriage box, which would be that which, you know, you've got the ammunition and the um, gunpowder in. Uh, I'm not quite sure for an analogy for that. For us, it would kind of be just be in the overall arching trend of make sure you have your weapon. Make sure it's taken care of. I like to make sure I know where mine is and that I'm never without it. My sword, typically. And of course, you've got the provisions for at least four days. Uh, we don't necessarily need that, but when I go to an event, even if I have a meal plan, which I do consistently have with Sarka's Kitchen, but even if I have one, I will bring other rations for myself. Little things, usually. I mean, nothing nothing super complicated. Maybe some goldfish and jerky for the salty and maybe a little bit for sweet and some sports drank. But apart from that, yeah, it's, it's not very much, but it's the necessities. It's the necessities. If everything were to go pear-shaped, then I would have the ability to survive, have the ability to continue eating and continue being on site like I like to do. And of course, at the time, you had the ability to cut and have the wood that you would need specifically for your fire. So the pioneer hatchet was, of course, less a weapon in this particular case and more just an absolute tool, which could be used for the harvesting of wood, for the chopping of anything. You know, it, it's an important thing to have to make sure that you're prepared in this way. And so those five things, if we can have the same, you know, what they represent, if we can always have our weapon, we can always know where we're gonna be sleeping, we know where we're gonna be eating, and we know what, where we're going to be getting our heat. Now, for those of us who also play tabletop games, such as, you know, 40K or uh, Battle Machine or whatever, you know, there's uh, we don't have to worry about some of these things. Like keeping warm. If you're having to worry about keeping warm where you're fighting or where you're, you're playing your game, uh, I mean, turn on the heater. I don't know. Because you don't want to light a fire indoors. That's highly inadvisable. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to draw some parallels on the other side of that. But, you know, for those of us who do our stuff outside, you know, bring it into more general terms, and it's absolutely true. Number 60. You should, by all means, encourage the soldiers to continue in the service. This you can easily do by testifying great esteem for old soldiers. 
The pay should also be increased in proportion to the years of service. There is a great injustice in giving no higher pay to a veteran than to a recruit. I mean, this one kind of goes without saying. Retention is, is huge. I mean, the, the cost alone of training up a new recruit is, you know, for one person, maybe not that big, but for an entire army, that's, an ex that's a massive expense. And then you've got to go through the process of battle hardening those same troops because just having them trained isn't usually enough. To have an army that is functional, it also needs to be something that is uh, accustomed to war. I think Clausewitz was saying that uh, when we were last talking about him. He was saying that it is important to have an army that is blooded, that has been there before. There are many units, for instance, that will not recruit new fighters. You know, they won't even look at fighters until they've been around for, you know, four or five years. Because at that point, they've actually become accustomed to what we do. We don't have to train them up from absolute scratch, which takes a lot of effort. And if the person just bugs out, then it's not really worth it. And that's the other part of this is, you know, because it's so expensive and because there is so much variability in how it's going to be received and how that soldier is actually going to fare in battle, if we have soldiers that are time-tested, that have actually you know, survived and do what they need to do, making sure they stick around is massive. And I mean, we do the same thing for, again, in units. You know, if we've got people who know what they're doing, we try to make sure that they stick around. They're an asset to any unit that they're a, they're a part of. And anybody who's been in the military knows that retention, I mean, the second that you even look at getting discharged for any reason, they're right there saying, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to stick around? We got this package for you. Give you a nice little raise here. Give you a little bonus. Why not? And again, the same. It's the same reason as it was way back then. It's, and actually, it's far more expensive right now to train a soldier. And that's the reason why you have professional armies around the world is because of the expense, and the on mass uh, tactics just don't work all that well anymore. And so, and so, yeah, retaining soldiers is huge. And in order to do this, there has to be justified rewards, and there has to be. Um, you know, a reason to do so. It's like, okay, well, if I stick around and I'm just making the same amount of money the whole time, you know, that's not really fair. And it's not really an incentive to stick around. But if I know that if I stick around, I'm going to be making more money from it. If veterans get some sort of preferential either pay or treatment, then you know, there's a reason. There's a reason to stick around. You know, absolutely. I mean, look at, again, the United States military. If you stick around for 20 years, then you get Oh, you are taken care of, my friend. You are taken care of. They got you made for the rest of your life if you stick around for 20 years because ideally those 20 years are during the most useful period of your life in terms of combat. You know, from about the age of your late teens and early 20s to your late 30s and your early 40s, that is when we are the most prone to being in the field. There are people that remain useful far after that. There are people who remain in the service far after that. But in terms of the most useful physically that a soldier can possibly be, that 20-year block is what we're looking at. And so, you know, for the United States military, it is crucial to maintain a lot of those professional soldiers. And so that's why so many benefits are offered, not just higher pay, but also, you know, the health insurance that you get there, the education opportunities, of course the money. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes along perks-wise with remaining in, and that's done for a reason. 
You know, it's, it's not just to fairly compensate people, which is awesome in of itself, but it's also to say, okay, an army functions better when the people know what they're doing. Full stop. An army functions better when people know what they're doing. So if people know what they're doing, keep them around. That's what Napoleon's saying here. It is not by harangues. This is, uh, oh, wait. Oh, that one's not marked. We're on 61, but the printer did not print out the number. So, but between you and me, we're on number 61. It is not by the harangues at the moment of engaging that soldiers are rendered brave. Veterans hardly listen to them and recruits forget them at the first discharge of a cannon. If speeches and arguments are at any time useful, it is during the course of the campaign by counteracting false reports and causes of discontent, maintaining a proper spirit in the camp and furnishing subjects of conversation in the Biovax. This, these several objectives may be attained by the printed orders of the day. Last minute speeches rarely accomplish anything. I mean, it's something that they love to do in movies. You know, you've got a, a, a unit, you've got some sort of military situation that seems dire, seems desperate. And there at the very last, you know, before the engagement begins, somebody's sitting there and saying, okay, we're going to do this. We got this, guys. And somehow, you know, the, the army is suddenly like, yeah, let's all do this. And everybody suddenly gets incensed. 99% of the time, that is not the way it plays out. And again, anybody who's has been in the military or has been in some sort of larger group of anything knows this. I mean, sports. Think about sports. You know, that, that, pre, that pre-game chat is usually a strategy chat. Okay, guys, you know, this person uh, does this well, this person does this well. We've been practicing X, Y, and Z. Make sure to focus on that. You know, that's kind of the purpose of this last thing, but it, it doesn't render the bravery. So like you said, the veterans have all heard it before. They're going to tune out. They're focused on what comes next. They know what comes next. And the recruits, people who are new, they don't, they don't, you know, they may be listening, but the second that it kicks off, everything that you've said is now going to go right out their ears. And so this particular form of support, this, this moral support that comes from, you know, leadership giving speeches or, or giving some other form of inspiring presentation or, or whatever, you know, it's, it should be done the entire time. It should be done the entire course of the campaign and make sure, like it says here to counteract false reports. You know, you're making sure that you're listening and saying, okay, well, this is being said right now. It's not true. So everybody get on the same page and say, okay, this is, this is the way that, you know, things are actually happening. You know, the so causes of discontent, making sure that we're addressing food shortages or uh, ammunition shortages or cold issues you know, as we're going along, and then maintaining the proper spirit in the camp and furnishing subjects of conversation. Make sure people are engaged. We're making sure that the, the bonding is happening. That is going to matter way more in the moment of combat than any sort of flowery words that are coming from a leader. Again, especially when we're dealing with big things. Small group tactics is a little bit different. But in these large group tactics, it is going to be the bonding that that soldier has with the person on their left and on their right that makes the makes or breaks that particular unit. And so, like, like he says, you know, you can do the dramatic speech beforehand. Why not? It's great for the history books. But when it comes to actually making a difference, when it comes to something that will actually impact the outcome of the, of the battle, it should have been being done the whole time. 
And that's why it's good to bond. You know, any, any last minute instructions, like if I come together with people that I don't know and we go to fight and we have no bond, if there's going to be a certain way that we fight together. Then if I come together with people who I've known for a long time with my unit mates, for instance, and we sit in camp together and we chat, not just about the game, but about life and about our memories and about our hopes and dreams for the future. And we bond between us. We bond between us as fighters. We bond between us as people. And so then when we're out there, when I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with Tin Man and Shadow, you know, I'm sitting there and I got Kryn backing me up. Uh, it's not just people at that point. They're not just people who are standing around me. These are my friends. These are my fellows, my comrades. And so again, but that's been done the whole time. It's not like the 15 minutes before we go on. It's suddenly like, okay, we all like each other. I like you. You like you, me. Okay, cool. We're good to go. No, no, there's a, there's a familiarity that it, it, it impacts the field so much more than just a last minute entreaty. So we're supposed to be doing it the whole time. If you're a realm or a unit leader and you've got people who are looking to you for leadership, make sure you know that that leadership happens way before the event even starts, way before the uh, lay on is even called. It happens in the weeks and the months prior in the bonding and the uh, messages that are being sent to our troops, to our friends at the time. And it says, you know, several of these objects may be attained by the printed orders of the day. How much faster is it, is it for us? You know, at the time the printed orders was like, okay, I got to have like three, you know, 330, whatever messengers and send them out to all different areas of the camp, to all the different commanders. And then they all get it instead of just being able to go on to some messaging service and say, boop, 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 boop. Okay. Everybody knows written orders are done a way of staying in contact or, you know, even just on message boards. It doesn't even have to be something that is super direct, but just making sure that everybody is on the same page, making sure that everybody is, is vibing with each other, man. You know, it's important. Number 62. And bear me with me on this one. This is kind of confusing in the beginning. Tents are injurious to health. See, I told you. It is much better for the soldier to be a vac because he can sleep with his feet to the fire, which quickly dry... Uh, the ground on which he lies. A few boards or a little straw shelter him from the wind. Tents, however, are necessary for the leaders, who have to write and consult the map. They should be given, therefore, to the superior officers, who should be ordered never to lodge in a house. Tents attract the observation of the enemy's staff, and make known your numbers and the position you occupy. But of an army biovacuing in two or three lines, nothing is perceived at a distance except the smoke, which the enemy confounds with the mist of the atmosphere. He cannot count the fires. And this is a, a fine distinction because a tent, if you imagine, is something that's larger, that's kind of popped up. And a biovac is different. It, it can just be in the open. It can just be like you're sleeping out there in the open, or it can be something where you have a, like, it's not quite a tent. And again, those, those of you who have been in the military know exactly what he's talking about. But imagine, you know, you're laying on the ground and you might have a, um, I don't know, a, a bedroll, especially, or something, a boards, like he's saying, to lay on. But then you've got a tarp or a piece of fabric that you've got over you, and you've got uh, two little, little things holding it up. And it's usually staked into the ground a little bit. And so it's enough to keep the rain from falling off or, uh, you know, from soaking into you, but it's not good for much else. You might be thinking, why would they do this? Why would they want the soldiers to sleep? in those kinds of conditions instead of having the larger tent. 
Well, think about the hygiene at the time, for one thing. You know, if you're outside and you are constantly being moved around, you're constantly getting, you know, worked up and not being able to be, bathe, then our, our clothes are going to be more prone to molding, are going to be more prone to having, you know, other issues. The feet to the fire specifically is about trench foot. And they called it something different at the time. We got the term trench foot from what developed for, for folks standing in the trenches during World War I. But it's been something common all throughout the ages of fighting as long as there's been wet and shoes that are made or that are, uh, you know, confining the feet in that wet. And it causes terrible, terrible infections. And it can really be injurious, not just to one's health, but of course, if it's widespread to the entire army. So this, this maining that you can dry out. Again, a tent is someplace where, where moisture can collect, where mold can gather, and it is not the same thing as drying out near the fire, right? And then the other thing that he's talking about here, of course, is visibility. You know, if you've ever been to a Bellagarth event, you can see it from a mile away. You know, you're looking and suddenly just a row of tents, boom, you can see them all. But when you buy a vac, it's much closer to the ground. And so you don't have that high profile. They're large enough to block out fires though, which is big. So you don't have the uh, obstruction of the view that a bunch of tents would create, but there's enough an obstruction that the fire isn't gonna pop out, unless they're at an elevated position, um, that the fire isn't gonna stick out overly badly either. And so, but, you know, again, the officers get tense. And I know it's like, oh, of course, the officers get tense. And while there is absolutely a measure of elitism there, there is also the necessity of saying, okay, well, the officers also need to be looking at maps. They also need to be writing and receiving orders. And, you know, again, at the time, we're not dealing with ink that bonds well with a paper. We're dealing with ink that can smear. We're dealing with ink that, you know, while it, it's, if, if it's rained on, you know, it runs. And so you don't want that. We don't want rain that's getting all over our messages one way or another. So that is one of the biggest reasons why officers would have their own tent, apart from, you know, officers being like, you know, I don't want to sleep in a vibe in a buyback situation. But he's also saying, you know, never in houses. Can never do in houses. And another big reason for this is if the army needs to get up and go real quick, it is super fast to collapse a biovac and get ready to go. You've got your tarp or whatever, and then you've got the two stakes and the ones that are holding it in the ground. And boom, 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 ready to go. Just wrap it up in your knapsack. We're good to go on the road. Whereas if the entire army has tents, well, you got to not only tear down the tents, but beforehand get all the stuff out of the tents and organize that stuff that may have become disorganized inside the tent. Again, if you've been to an event, I challenge anyone to have a orderly tent by the end. If you are capable, then you are far more organized than 90% of your sport and or our organization because it is just in people's nature to make a mess when we're on campaign. And so less of a space to actually do that in and, you know, a place where the food is not going to collect or waste is not going to collect, that's for the best. That's for the best for these guys, not for us. You're not going to catch me biovacuuming at an event. That, that week-long event in uh, Idaho, Chaos Wars, yeah, I got a cabin. Because <laughs> I'm not worried about anybody knowing where I am. If anything, I want them to know where I am so they'll come and visit and hang out in my cabin with me. So, if you're out Chaos Wars, come chill in Mullark's cabin. It'll be fun. I'm breaking Napoleon's rules all over the place. Number 63. The information obtained from prisoners 
ought to be estimated at its proper value. A soldier seldom looks beyond his own company, and an officer can, at most, give an account of the position or movements of the division to which his regiment belongs. A general, therefore, should not allow himself to be confirmed in his conjectures as to the enemy's position by attaching any weight to the statement of prisoners, except when they coincide with the reports of the advanced guards. Sometimes our prisoners or POWs surrender on their own accord, and sometimes they are captured after some sort of conflict when capitulation is necessary. But either way, like he's saying, not every port report is reliable. And in particular, when you're dealing with people at lower levels, like, I mean, if you would have, if I would have been captured, for instance, and I was even, even the rear with the gear, if I had ever been captured for whatever reason, uh, I would not have been able to tell them. They'd have been like, okay, what is the overall plan? What is America's overall plan in X, Y, or Z location? And I said, uh, I don't know. I organized the library and look over photographs from time to time. And, uh, oh, I also help manage the transportation for my particular unit. But apart from that, no, I don't know the overarching strategic plans because through operational security, people know what they need to know. And a low-level soldier is not going to know much about beyond just, yeah, we were camped over there, but who knows where we are now? You know, it's not like, again, most most POWs, most people who are offering to give up information, again, it's not like the movies. Banish movies from your head. Read old books, banish movies from your head. Because that whole scene where, like, the one lowly soldier comes in and it's like, oh, I have a report. And then that report, like, revolutionizes the, the entire war, and then they go on to win because this one private happen to know absolutely everything about the other's team, give me a break. That's not going to happen. You know, you have somebody like Benedict Arnold, who, who defects and goes to the other side. That matters. The information that guy had mattered and made a huge uh, impact. I mean, it didn't win England the war, but it certainly hurt. It really hurt the Continental cause. And so the higher level, of course, somebody who switches over, the more information that they're going to be privy to. But even then, they may not know everything. And what they know may be flawed, or they might be outright lying. And so if we as commanders take everything we hear at face value, not only are we going to be confused by conflicting reports, we are also going to be confounded by either people intentionally or accidentally trying to obfuscate what the information actually is. And so what we want is not only corresponding information between those you know, captured elements who might be telling us, but also our own advance guards. And it's like, if somebody says, oh, you know, they're, they're camped by the river. And I'm like, okay, that's all fine and dandy. Hey, scouts, are they camped by the river? And the scouts are like, yep, oh yeah, they're camped by the river. Then they are. But if I go, hey, scouts, are they camped by the river? And they're like, mm -mm, nope, don't see nobody. Well, that information wasn't reliable. And it was a good thing that we didn't make our entire battle plan based around that information. So how can we apply this? How can we apply this to war gaming? Well... You know, even within something like Bellagarth, where we're out there and we have friends. Just because you're in a unit doesn't mean we don't have friends outside of that unit. You know, I'm, I'm a dark angel, but that doesn't mean that all my friends are dark angels or even triad. I've got friends all over the place. I got friends in the Urukai, got friends in the Gelf, got friends in the Kushi, got friends in Ravnus, you know, all, all over the place. You know, I got, I got, I got friends in low places. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist myself. But the point of the matter is we don't have the same sort of uh, uh, division. 
between sides that they would at this time. But even then, there are little nuggets. There are, of course, rumors, unsubstantiated or otherwise, that might impact how we deal with or approach a given unit or situation. And so that information can be very useful to us. But as anybody who has interacted with humans at all knows, not every rumor is true. Not every rumor is accurate. You know, one might, you know, have similar information, but may miss the actual heart or the actual real truth of what's going on. And so to believe one person for a rumor or to believe one person for a piece of information is kind of silly because that delivery can be flawed for many reasons. They could, could again have flawed information. It may be outdated information, or it could be an outright lie, an outright attempt to deceive us. But if I hear something from a member of Horde, and I hear the same thing from the Gelf, and I hear the same thing from the Urukai about you know, some other third party, well, then I might start to take that seriously. It might be something worth looking into. But up until the point when we know that the information can be trusted because our own people have seen it. You know, if my advanced guards are out there and they say, okay, yeah, this person said this about, you know, somebody else, but we've also seen it for ourselves, then yeah, that rumor is probably not a rumor. It's probably just a, a truth that is floating around. And you might say to me, Malark, why are you, why are you encouraging us to engage in gossip? Why are you encouraging us to you know, engage with the petty politics that come with any human institution. And I would say to you, have you listened to the show? How much about this show has told you that politics aren't important, that information isn't key and important, even if it's not something that is consciously used? If I know that a particular team is having social issues, for instance, if they're not gelling the way that they should be, if you've got infighting or rivalries that are kind of weakening the fabric of that group, absolutely I'm going to hit them harder. Absolutely I'm going to try to divide them and stress them out to make it easier to destroy my enemy. You know, I, I, I mean, obviously I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings for real. I'm not trying to actually damage individuals, but just on even a base level. Knowing people's weaknesses and knowing the weaknesses of a group are crucial, but we have to make sure we filter that information. We cannot base our entitled battle plans on a, on a rumor, you know. Well, I think that that might be where we stop for today. So, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for sticking around and listening to some more Maxims, and we're going to check out some more next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in-touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.